Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. This morning we begin our exploration of the book of Exodus. As listeners know, each week we look at a particular section of the Torah as it appears in the lexicon of the Jewish people. A weekly reading is called a parasha, a selection Parashat Shavua, the weekly reading. And this week it is Exodus, beginning in verse chapter 1, verse 1, and continuing through chapter 6, verse 1. It is a long parashah with many well-known stories. The book of Genesis had ended with the death of Jacob, And the book of Exodus begins with the sons of Israel, namely Jacob, in Egypt. And they were growing and prospering. And the text tells us that a new pharaoh rose up over Egypt who knew nothing of Joseph. This pharaoh was worried that the Israelite nation was too mighty. And first he levied a tax on them. And then he decided to make them slaves. The story continues by telling us that in spite of their slavery, the Israelites continued to grow and ordered that the Hebrew midwives, it's not clear from the Hebrew text whether they were the midwives of the Hebrews or Hebrews themselves, Shifra and Puah, were ordered to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. But the midwives feared God, which leads us to believe that the word Hebrew here refers to their religious identification, not that they were simply midwives to the Hebrew, and told Pharaoh that they would um, continue to kill the boys, but did not. And Pharaoh um, was unaware of their refusal to follow his orders. And the book takes a change of direction and tells us the story of a child from the family of Levi who had kept him hidden for three months. And when the mother could no longer hide him, she wove a basket, laid the child in it, and placed it among the reeds by the banks of the river. We know, of course, from our reading of the text that this is the beginning of the Moses epic. When Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river to bathe, she saw the basket with a crying child. She took pity on him so that when the baby sister asked, shall I call a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby for you? She said, yes. The sister then fetched her mother, and when the child had grown sufficiently, the mother brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter. She gave him an Egyptian name, Moses, which translates as I drew him from the water. Now the text again shifts and speaks of Moses as an adult and tells us that when Moses was an adult, he looked upon the burdens of his Hebrew brethren 
One day he saw an Egyptian man beating a Hebrew. Moses turned this way and that and saw that no one was there to watch him. And he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Moses flees Egypt. Fearful that he will be found out as having murdered an Egyptian overseer. And runs away, finds himself in the land of Midian while Moses was tending sheep for his father-in-law Yitro, priest of the Midianites, near the mountain of God at Horeb, the text tells us. An angel of God appeared to him in the heart of a fire from the midst of a thorn bush. He saw and lo, the thorn bush was on fire, but was not consumed. Moses looked at this great sight and went to see why the thorn bush did not burn up. And here we have this powerful narrative. God called to Moses from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, says Moses, repeating the words that Abraham had said on his way to Mount Moriah. Do not step here, says God. Take off your shoes for the place you are standing on is ground with a holy destiny. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look toward God. God continues to speak from this burning bush. I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cries as slaves. Now I have come down to rescue them from the hand of Egypt and bring them to a good and spacious land, a land that can flow with milk and honey. Now, therefore, go, I will send you to Pharaoh and bring to my people the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And as many of you know, Moses challenges this command and says, who am I to go and speak to Pharaoh? Who will the people think that I am? And the story then takes us back to Egypt, in which Moses confronts Pharaoh. And Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. The conclusion of this week's parasha reminds us of the famous story recited by the Israelites at Passover, even to this day. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh saying, God, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival for me in the wilderness. Who is God that I should let Israel go, says Pharaoh. I do not know God and I will not let Israel go. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the slaves were no longer to be given straw to prepare bicks. Instead, Pharaoh says, the slaves are to go and gather themselves their own straw, but the quota of bricks they are to make remains the same. Because they are lazy, they cry for this holiday to worship their God. God says to Moses, having heard the words of Pharaoh, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for by a strong hand he will let them go. Indeed, by a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. A powerful narrative, a narrative that we know well from Western literature, 
or from the world of film. With me this morning to discuss the variety of issues implicit and explicit in our Torah portion is Rabbi Bradley Bleefeld of Pennsylvania. Rabbi Bleefeld, uh, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, we are beginning our conversation this morning w- about the book of Exodus um, and the first parashah of the book of Exodus known as Shemot. And I'm wondering, um, since we are transitioning to a new book of the Hebrew uh Bible known as the Torah, the second book of the five books. How do you see the connection between Genesis and Exodus, as they're known in the Greek and English? There's obviously um, a uh, wonderful connection in terms of the narrative of the story of the Israelite uh, community from the land of Canaan to Egypt and back to Canaan. But for me, there is a much more profound connection because I see these opening chapters of the book of Exodus as one of the most empowering statements the biblical text can offer to humanity. And and how is that? Because most people would be um, focused on the narrative and how the narrative um, is reflected in the varieties of different movies that have been made of these uh, six chapters of Exodus. But you see it more significantly than just a plot line for Cecil B. DeMille. Yes. In fact, I see it so very personal for you, for me, for every human being. The plot line is merely the stage for which the message of empowerment is conveyed. Here we have Moses, and we don't know much about Moses, but we know one thing. Moses is a murderer, but then he becomes a lawgiver. Moses is a shepherd, then he becomes a prophet. Moses transitions. We see Moses in the wilderness, standing before the burning bush, and he hears a voice, Shalna lecha me'al raglecha, take the shoes off your feet, the ground upon which you stand is holy. Now God has Moses' attention. And Moses is told he's going to be the one to go to Pharaoh. He's going to be the one to go back to those people and effect a transition from slavery to freedom. And Moses objects. Time after time, Moses says, don't send me. I'm not capable. You have the wrong guy. Do not send me. Moses is finally convinced. And then he says, but I'm going to go back there. And the people are going to ask me, who sent you? Who is this God? What's his name? And Moses says, Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh, because that's what he hears from the burning bush. Now, the movies, the uh, King James translation, 
get the words in Hebrew incorrect. You'll find it all over the place. And Cecil B. DeMille's voice is, I am that I am. Incorrect translation. Because I am that I am, from the same from the King James Version, is the present tense of the state of being verb, to be. I am. That's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, I will be who I will be. It uses the future tense. And the future tense is all about potential. And so God is admitting to Moses and to the world, you want to know who I am? I am potential. I am becoming what I am becoming. And not only that, that is my name. In, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Shemi, that's my name, Vizichri, and how you will remember me. My name and my memorial throughout the generations, Lador Dor. You will remember that God is potential. Now, here's the connection to the book of Genesis. In the very first chapter of Genesis, in verse 26, God says, or the words of the uh, biblical author, puts the words in God's mouth, let's create humanity in our image. Naseh. Adam b'tzalmenu kidmutenu. Let's create man in our image. Humanity is a reflection of the divine. Humanity was created in the image of the divine. So if God is potential, as the words from the burning bush will admit, then so are we. We are potential. And that's the incredible message of this Torah portion, the very personal message. Moses, you're transitioning just like God, just like the divine, because we're all created in the divine image. And Moses, if you think you can't do it, you can do it. So, so Moses, it's, it's a fascinating take on the story. Let me ask you some questions on behalf of our listeners. Most readers of the Hebrew text, either in the Hebrew, the Greek, or the English, see God in a more static way than you're suggesting. They see God um, as a constant, um, and certainly from a faith perspective, uh, most monotheistic traditions see God as the ever-present constant. But you have offered the interpretation that uh, God is uh, changing, that God is metamorphosizing um, into something that will be in the future, an unknown. So how does that square with the more traditional understanding of the text. It's a beautiful interpretation, and it leads us in many wonderful directions. But how does it square with the normative understanding of God is the constant? I see no dichotomy, because potential 
is always there. Potential is always inherent in we human beings. So that which is constant and ever-present is our ability to be different tomorrow than we are today in the image of the divine. So you read from Genesis, verse 25 and 26, that if we are created in the image and likeness of God, and we, and God is um, something which will be different in the future than God is today, and that Moses um, is challenged to do the same, then the constant is the ability of both God to morph and to be uh, something different today uh, as opposed to tomorrow. And so we too, reflecting God's image, have the same potentiality. Exactly. And as the individual grows and develops emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, doesn't our concept of the divine change as we go from childhood through adolescence to adulthood to maturity? Don't we have the potential of seeing the divine differently, changing in our relationship to the divine, even though our relationship is constant? The same is true for our relationship to the potential within us. Here's the bottom line of this message and of this Torah portion. Every one of us is a slave to a pharaoh. Every human being has a pharaoh. How do we free ourselves? How do we release ourselves from the bondage of whatever the pharaoh is that enslaves us? Perhaps it's nicotine. Perhaps it's a bad relationship. Perhaps it's, it's a boss or a situation with family, friends, perhaps with ourselves. Often we see the inability in ourselves to change, improve, to release ourselves from that bondage. This Torah portion is saying, so long as you live, human beings, you and me and everyone else, we have the potential to free ourselves from whatever enslaves us, because we have the potential that is divine. So what do we need? Yes, go ahead. We need the humility and the understanding that with a sense of the divine within us, we are empowered. The ground in front of that burning bush is holy. Here's what I might say. Everywhere we tread, the ground is holy, because we all have the potential of changing. We all have the potential of being better tomorrow than we are today. That's the empowerment of this Torah portion for me. So it's a fascinating interpretation and it leaves the literal narrative far behind. And so all of the standard questions 
that our listeners and others might ask about the narrative uh, concerning a burning bush um, or concerning uh, how God hears the cry of the Hebrew slaves or um, how Moses can demand proof uh, to show the elders that God spoke to him are kind of um, a push to the side um, in favor of an interpretation that's more um, psychological. And you're suggesting that the writers of the Torah, um, however they're understood, wanted us to see divinity not in such an anthropomorphic state, um, but in a more psychological state, that the divinity within us is um, the ability to respond to an external uh, sense of change and responsibility. Um, How do your uh, congregants over the decades um, resonate with this message? Um, I have observed their response very similar to my own sense of how the biblical text is genius. The genius of this text is not the literal narrative. The genius of this text is how it can make you and me and every human being, every congregant, every person on the face of the earth, how can this text resonate with us as human beings to make us better, to improve our lives, to inspire us and invigorate us? That's the genius of the biblical text. For me... The literal sense is a wonderful story. It may or may not be historically correct. We could debate that forever. What for me is not debatable is the presence of the divine for each and every one of us. All we need to do is understand that. The burning bush is an attention getter for Moses and for all human beings. Now that I have your attention, here's the message. Each of us has the power to be better tomorrow than we are today. Each of us has the power. And as you offer this um, wonderful explanation, um, what attention getters do we see in our lives today? Most of us would not claim to uh, have uh, an occurrence of a burning bush in our lives. Um, So how do we see this presence um, offering us the message of eternal possibility? And most of us, by the way, uh, don't have the opportunity, as Moses does, to make these transitions from murderer to shepherd to savior to lawgiver. Um, along the way, most who have committed crimes such as murder have consequences um, that are far more significant than just uh, running away to start a new life. 
Um, so how does God get our attention now? Um, as I see the world and the potential in every moment of life, I believe that one needs to open their eyes and their hearts to what each of us has within us to use to make the world a better place. Um, that's a message that certainly the biblical text conveys, but parents, teachers, colleagues, friends, neighbors, spouses, children, that's a message that we ought to be giving each other on a regular basis. The, the, the universe is magnificent. The awareness of that magnificence can translate into a person's desire to be better. So the burning bush that's not consumed isn't external to us, it's internal to us. I would say that. I would agree with that. Because unlike Moses, we don't have to have that transformative um, experience external to our very being. We simply have to actualize the message that's within us. I would agree with that. That is beautifully said. To actualize the potential within each of us. Beautifully said. And I believe that's the message of this Torah portion. Well, it's a wonderful message. I mean, you've transformed what is usually seen as a cinematic uh, script into something much more powerful, as powerful as the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or any of the um, attempts at portraying this on the screen or in uh, literature, you have transformed it into a message that's universal and not particularistic. It's not simply the enslavement of the Hebrews. It's the enslavement of all to pharaohs and overseers, and you've offered the listeners the possibility that they can break out of their slavery if they just listen to the voice within them that says they can be who they are intended to be. Um, It's a powerful message, Um, and I thank you for sharing it with me and with our listeners. Um, For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I want to thank Rabbi Bradley Bleefeld for his wisdom this morning and for offering us insights into the Torah portion. You can hear a repeat of this program as a podcast on iTunes or on the chri.ca website. For those who wish to ask a question of Rabbi Bleefeld or any of the guests on Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, simply send an email to jff at chri.ca. 
For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, thanking my guest, Rabbi Bradley Bleefeld, and wishing you shalom and a good day. Shalom